Well, in God's good providence, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 today, so please turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we are. I want to look at verses 7 through 10. July 4th, 2010 was the first sermon I ever preached, and it was on this passage. It was six days before uh, my wedding, my first wedding, (laughs) only wedding. (laughs) And uh, as a 20-year-old, I, seeing that it was July 4th, I wanted to preach on the pursuit of happiness in the Christian life. That happiness that we just sang about, we sing because we're happy. And I picked this passage, 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, about Paul's thorn in the flesh and how our comfort is not what makes us happy, our ease is not what makes us happy, the things that we think we want are not what makes us happy. But we truly can find happiness, we can find joy, we can find peace in this life because of Christ dwelling in us. And I'll certainly preach on this passage differently today than I did those 13 years ago and um, probably preach on this passage differently than what I thought when I was preparing it this week. Because since I finished this sermon on Wednesday, there have been multiple stories I've heard from people in our congregation who are dealing with very difficult things. And so I don't I don't want to be unnecessarily heavy or drab or dark and gloomy, but I also believe that God has made this moment here today and that His Word is all-sufficient and that in His good grace, we're here at 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So let me read verses 7 through 10 and then pray for us. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason... To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God, we thank You for Your all-sufficient Word. We thank You that You are our all-sufficient Savior that You are the Omnipotent One, full of power, and that You have seen fit to place Your power within us, Your people. God, help us to have the right perspective today. Help us to see our lives the way You see them. Help us to give over those things we've been holding on to, to You, that we would recognize today, if we haven't yet, that we would see it today, that this life is all for Christ. We thank you for this experience that Paul had and that you inspired him to write this down. Help us now today to understand this 
that I wouldn't get in the way, but that your word would be clear to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we looked last week at Paul having an an amazing vision, an amazing experience, a vision of paradise, the third heaven we saw, he called it. Things he saw that were inexpressible, things that men are not permitted to speak, he beheld with his own eyes. And that goes right into this passage today where in verse 7 he says that because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, these visions, to keep him from exalting himself, he was humbled. And again at the end of verse 7, one more time he repeats it, to keep him from exalting himself. After this experience and this vision and seeing the third heaven, Paul needed to be humbled. It would, of course, have been very natural in the flesh for Paul to be puffed up, for Paul to be inward focused, to be very proud of his experiences. I won't have the quotes for you on the screen today, but I'll still read them for you. Robert Gramacki says, people naturally like to brag about what they know, where they've traveled, and whom they've seen. When that desire is dominated by sin, however, the bragging, men, the bragging of men becomes obnoxious. <laughs> Isn't that the case? The bragging of men becomes obnoxious. And so Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. He says twice in verse 7, to keep him from exalting himself. You know, this is a temptation for even the most mature among us. It's a temptation to be proud. It's a temptation to lift yourself up, to look at your accomplishments, to reflect on your life lived and think that you're better than other people. Constant temptation. If it was a temptation for the Apostle Paul, I think we would all have to agree that it's a temptation for us. Pride, of course, was that first sin, and I would say it's the most persistent sin. Pride is constantly lingering. It's always knocking at the door. And the truth is, if we all admit it, if we were all honest in our heart of hearts, we would all say, we constantly need to be humbled, don't we? Constantly. We need to be humbled. We need to be reminded of our proper place, that we are creatures, not the Creator. That God's yes is yes, and His no is no, and we are fickle. It's humbling. Well, in Paul's humbling here, we see multiple actors. I want to break this down so you can see who is doing what before we talk about the application for the rest of the message. But We see God the Father, we see Satan, we see a messenger of Satan, and we see God the Son, Jesus Christ, all involved in Paul's life to bring him to a place of humility, that he would not be exalted. Even though the Father is not mentioned here, I think we can see him when we look at this uh, this passage, because he says two times in verse 7 that this happened for a reason. The reason was to keep him from exalting himself. The start of verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason. Whose reason is this? It's God's reason. This is God's purpose. This is the intention of the one who has declared the end from the beginning. In Proverbs 19, verse 21, it's a verse that I have at the bottom of my emails. It's down by my email signature. Is one of the most helpful reminders that we can have that says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The Lord has a purpose. He has a purpose in your life. He has a purpose 
for this world that He created. It's all going somewhere. Many are our plans, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 11, just a couple of verses in Ephesians 1, talking about God being in control. It says in Ephesians 1.11 that we have obtained an inheritance. Christians, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. He works all things after the counsel of His will. He has a purpose. He works all things according to His will. And the great joy for Christians is that our end in all this is that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. We're His forever. We will be glorying in our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, forever and ever. But the reason why we're in this position, the reason why you are in that position today, Christian, is because God has worked all things together according to the counsel of His will. He didn't bring in any other counsel. It's His will. Paul was going through this humbling according to the will of God. You are going through humbling experiences in your life according to the will of God. You encounter difficulty, you encounter hardship, you encounter your own thorns in the flesh because of the will of God. Not outside of the will of God, not against the will of God, but because of the will of God. He works all things together, all things. That includes your thorns by the counsel of His will, His will alone. And this thorn, this messenger of Satan, was given by God ultimately. Middle of verse 7, it says, There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. This thorn is Satan's messenger. So we see here that Satan too plays a role in Paul's humbling. Satan plays a role in the humbling of, of even the most mature Christians. And you might be taken aback by such a thought, saying, God would use Satan? The answer is yes. A very simple quote from Martin Luther. This is one that you can memorize. The devil is the Lord's devil. Remember that. The devil is the Lord's devil. The devil's a creature. And God will use him as he wills. Turn with me, if you would, back to the book of Job. Go past the book of Psalms, right before Psalms is the book of Job. It's another big book in the Old Testament there, close to the middle of your Bible. Job chapter 2, starting in verse 3, see how God uses Satan here to affect Job. Job chapter 2, starting at 3, and I'm going to read down through verse 10. It says, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from all evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. 
Imagine that simple phrase right there in verse 6. The Lord says to Satan, this child of mine, Job, he's in your power. God permitted it. He's working all things together according to the counsel of his will. The devil is the Lord's devil. He is allowing this. Kind of makes you wonder if there was a similar conversation between the Lord and Satan about the Apostle Paul. Verse 7, Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. It's the song we sang earlier. Are you good only when I prosper? And true only when I'm well? Are you king only when I'm carefree? No, God is God despite what's going on in your life. He is God alone. He remains Lord of all things. He remains good through it all. And yes, at times, He will even use Satan to bring us to the point of realizing that. There's a quote that I wrote out for myself a couple of years ago that I like to remind myself of from time to time, that the Creator is absolutely free to glorify Himself by governing His creatures according to His will alone. God, as Creator, is absolutely free to glorify Himself by governing all of us and the supernatural realm according to His will alone. And oftentimes we have to go through hardship to understand that. Well, not only was Satan involved in Paul's humbling, but Satan had a messenger. Do you see that? There was a messenger that was involved, Satan's messenger, described as a thorn in the flesh, the thorn in the flesh that tormented Paul, it says in verse 7. That word for torment means to beat up. This thorn in the flesh was beating him up constantly. There's no consensus of what this thorn is. There are different theories that are out there. And the only real consensus that we can come to is what Paul repeats in verse 7, is that the reason why he had this thorn was to humble himself, to keep him from exalting himself. Paul Barnett, in his commentary, says, God brought the elated Paul down to earth and pinned him there with a thorn. David Garland, piggybacking off of that, said, it also kept Paul pinned closer to the Lord. Whatever this thorn was kept Paul pinned down and pinned closer to the Lord. But you basically have two options as you interpret what this thorn in the flesh could have been. One is a physical ailment. The second is some sort of person, some sort of group of people perhaps that were opposing Paul, and we know that there were plenty in Corinth. It basically comes down to, when you see that phrase, thorn in the flesh, messenger of Satan, do you want to highlight flesh or do you want to highlight messenger? If you think about something that's in the flesh, that would indicate a physical ailment, some sort of sickness perhaps or disability that Paul had. But if you think of what messenger means, so often in Scripture that word messenger means a person, someone who was affecting Paul's ministry in a negative way. I do think at the end of the day that it's likely that Paul had a physical ailment 
maybe even one that came and went. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But you can see that he did have some physical issues in his letter to the Galatians. This was at the start of his inspired letter-writing ministry, the first inspired letter Paul wrote to the Galatians. In chapter 6, verse 11, Paul tells them at the end, "'See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand,' indicating perhaps he had a vision problem. Earlier in that same letter, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, "'You used to love me. I know that you would have even plucked out your own eyes and given them to me,' again indicating perhaps he had some sort of vision issue." And with Paul being on the run so much, traveling so much, being threatened so much, you can understand why bad vision would make it all the more difficult. But in either case, no matter what the thorn was, we know that the thorn was a problem. The thorn was a big problem. It was a major difficulty, a major hardship in the life of Paul. And what we're learning through this, knowing that Paul had this given to him from the Lord, using Satan, putting this in his life, we can see that there are distinctions between problems that come from sin and problems that prevent us from sin. This problem that Paul had prevented him from sin. It was keeping him from exalting himself. It was keeping him from pride. Yet we also know that there are problems that we have in this life that are consequences of our own sinful choices, aren't they? There are problems that we encounter that aren't thorns in the flesh, given to us by God through Satan, but they are just problems of our own doing. In 1 Corinthians, the first letter that Paul wrote to them, 1130, 1 Corinthians 1130, Paul talked to them about treating the Lord's table correctly, communion correctly, and he says that it's because of their approach to the Lord's table flippantly, in a, in a non-reverent way, an irreverent way, he says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you sleep, a number of you are dead. It was the consequences of their own actions that the Lord responded with hardship for them. But then we see this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, where Peter outlines this same thought and gives us this distinction between suffering for sin and suffering for Christ. He says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. And he says in the next verse, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. There's a difference between suffering as someone who's making sinful choices and someone who suffers as a Christian, someone who is being intentionally humbled by God, someone who is enduring circumstances totally outside his or her control. And with this, Paul was clearly experiencing something outside of his own control. And we we know the difference between these two circumstances really well in our personal lives. I'll talk to some people sometimes that will say that life is really difficult. I've got no money in the bank. I just don't know what to do. Can't make ends meet. And then when you bring up the thought of looking at the checkbook register to see where the money's been going, all of a sudden the person doesn't want to talk anymore. Natural consequences, making choices that lead to no money. But then we also know there are people who are true victims. There are people who don't have any money because they were robbed. Someone stole from them. A circumstance totally outside of their control. 
So there are true victims of circumstances that are outside of our control, and Paul was enduring such a circumstance with this thorn in the flesh. And let me tell you that there are reasons that God has for this. You already know that he was keeping Paul from exalting himself, but let me give you some more to chew on. For those of us who are true victims going through difficult things in life with Jesus Christ, those of us who are believers in Jesus, God is testing us. You know, he continues to do that. You read about it in the Old Testament, God to test Abraham, yada, yada, yada. God to test this person or that person. You know, he still tests his people. God still works in our lives in such a way that he would be revealing the faith that's within. That's what testing does, is it reveals what's in your heart. It reveals the faith that's there. He's refining us. He's refining even the truth in us, because we go along in this life and we carry some truth with us through this life and how quickly it becomes intertangled with sin, how quickly the truth becomes intertangled with lies. And when you're tested by God, those things start to be pulled apart. When you're tested by God, you need the truth. And the truth becomes more and more evident. God strengthens us in these tests. He gives us more and more confidence in Him. He gives us more and more faith to walk by it and not by sight. This testing is good that God gives us. And He teaches us, doesn't He? There are so many lessons that we learn with our thorns in the flesh that we just wouldn't have learned otherwise, that we couldn't have learned otherwise. Paul is showing us here that he was learning more and more about his dependency on Christ. Another one of those things, you go into this life with some idea of how dependent you are on your Creator, but how quickly you start getting self-sufficient. How quickly we start getting comfortable. How quickly we start thinking that we have it all figured out and that we know what's going to happen tomorrow. We can look at the weather forecast, we know. We have no idea. Cracks me up anytime the weatherman says, you know, next Sunday it's going to look like this. Seven days from now? Really? You have no idea. And it is a sobering reality when we hit the brick wall of God's purposes that we do not know what is in store today, tomorrow, next week, next year. We do not know. But here's something you can know for certain. Now and forever, you are totally and utterly dependent on God. You are nothing apart from your Creator. You wouldn't be here apart from your Creator. You don't have your next breath apart from the one who sustains the universe, the one who holds all things together, even Jesus Christ. You've got nothing apart from Christ. He is your life. You are totally, absolutely, completely, thoroughly, 1,000% dependent on Jesus. You've got nothing apart from Him. And we learn these lessons when we have thorns. Well, Paul apparently had felt that he had learned this already and he was ready to be free of the thorn. He says, verse 8, Concerning this, the thorn, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Three times. And notice... He's not angry with God here. I think that's really important to notice. He's not angry with God, but he's asking God to, to act. Notice too, he's not asking God why. 
How often we ask God why in circumstances like this. He doesn't ask God why. He isn't angry. But he goes to the one he knows has all the power, and he asks him to act. He implores the Lord. He begs of the Lord to take care of this thorn in the flesh. Three times, he says, three times. I think this may suggest that it was some sort of flare-up sickness that Paul had. That there were three times where it was especially difficult. And he understandably wanted to be delivered from that torment. And that's not bad. We can learn that from this passage too. It's not bad to ask God to deliver you from torment. But what do you always say at the end of those prayers? Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Remember our Savior Jesus in the garden? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Well, finally, there was a clear answer given by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fourth player in this drama where Paul quotes him here. That Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. He gets his answer from King Jesus, and Jesus says no. Paul had asked three times for Jesus to do something. After the third time, Jesus says no. What can we learn from that? Well, first thing I think is, that God doesn't always give us an immediate response to prayer. He asked three times, and it was after the third time that Jesus said no. You think there's value in persisting in prayer? You think there's value in going back to the Lord again and again? If you don't, you won't pray. How often do you get something the first time you ask it of the Lord? How often do you get a response? We are to persist in prayer. That's the way the Bible presents this. Second thing we can learn, quite obviously, is that God doesn't always say yes. He's a good father. And what do all the good fathers in this room know? You don't always say yes. In fact, the more childish your children are, the more often you're saying no. Well, Jesus doesn't say yes. Even, even when Paul is asking for healing... God does not always say yes. Now, there are times when He does, and you should ask in faith. Every time, ask with the heart of faith. But be ready for God to say no. Be ready for Jesus to say no. It's all about His will, not our will. And your level of spirituality, the spiritual maturity that you think you have, it does not qualify you for healing. Paul, I mean, who of us is more qualified than Paul to ask God for healing? And Jesus said no to Paul. The Lord will prioritize His will over yours. And that's a good thing. We can say amen to that. We can agree with that. We can cherish that. Because He is good in all that He does. Do you believe that? I want you to ask yourself internally. Do you believe this? Because this is real faith, people. This is what faith is. Not your will, but God's will. That God is good alone. That's what faith is. Looking to Jesus Christ in whom 
is all grace and all power in saying He is sufficient no matter what I go through in this life, no matter what Satan throws at me, no matter what God has ordained, I will trust Him. That is faith. If you're missing this, you're missing faith. There's a great little book I commend to you that walks through this, particularly for those suffering in, with sickness. It's an older book, just simply titled, A Book of Comfort in Sickness. It's by a man named P.B. Power. He uh, died in 1899. Philip Bennett Power, A Book of Comfort in Sickness. Now, it's written in the 1800s, and you read it, and it sounds like it was written in the 1800s. I think there are some updated English versions of it. But if this is an area where you're struggling to have faith through hardship, to have faith in difficulty, this book would be a great study for you. It would be a great help. Because that's ultimately where Paul ends up, is that these thorns are good. I titled the message today, Hug Your Thorns. And that's what Paul learned to do. How we should respond when God says no to our requests for relief, to our requests for ease and escape. Paul says he's learned to embrace the hardship. Again, verse 9, Jesus says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul's response, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, we can be very thankful that Jesus didn't give Paul a cold, short answer. Jesus just could have said no, and that could have been it, right? Jesus didn't have to say anything. But he gave him more than just a simple no. He explains here that his grace is sufficient. Not Paul's ability, not what Paul had learned in how to manage his own life. That wasn't sufficient. Jesus says that His grace, the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for Paul, that the power of Jesus Christ is perfected in the weakness of Paul. Paul's hardship caused him to recognize more and more of the grace of Jesus, more and more of the power of Jesus. It was through the thorns that Paul understood more and more of the surpassing, wonderful grace of Jesus Christ. And this really is grace, experiencing the power of God in our difficulties, in our helplessness, to experience God acting and being strong in us. When we understand more and more of our dependency on the power of God, we are experiencing God's grace. Your thorns are God's grace that you would learn more and more of God's power. And we will never embrace hardship until we understand that the result of our hardship is the power of God. We won't do it. We, we will still try to avoid all of our hardships. We'll still try to avoid all of our difficulties if we don't understand that through this, on the other side of this, in the midst of this, through it all is the strength of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ, the power of God 
in our salvation and in our sanctification. If we don't embrace that with open arms, if we don't cling on to that, we're going to keep running from hardship. We're going to continually try to escape the difficulties of this life and seek out a life of comfort and ease. Because grace and power are more intimately understood when we are helpless, we should lean into our helplessness. We should embrace more of our weakness. There are a variety of Christian movements out there that emphasize our strength. They emphasize our comfort as a priority. They emphasize our will over the will of God. And they're all missing the point. They're all missing the point of what following Christ is all about. They're missing the point of how we experience the power of God in a fallen world. Because the way that we experience God's power is in our weaknesses. Think about it. This is seen in our salvation. I mean, even before our weaknesses enter the picture, think about the great paradox of Jesus Christ dying on the cross in victory. Think of the great paradox there is about God's power being on display when men nailed Him to a cross. In Colossians, or not Colossians, 1 Corinthians rather, chapter 1, verse 18, a very good memory verse if you haven't committed it to memory yet, Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This cross that represents an instrument of murder, an instrument of killing, blood poured out on the cross, Jesus breathing His last on the cross, we hold forth that cross as the power of God. Not as weakness, not as helplessness. That's what everyone around thought it was when they were watching Him die. How weak, how helpless. It's the power of God. It says in Colossians chapter 2 that Jesus was proclaiming victory in that moment to the rulers and principalities over the demons, saying, He is the victor. Christ displayed His power when men thought He was the weakest. And then when we enter the picture, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, it says that while we were still helpless, Christ died for us. We don't come to Christ with power. We don't come to Jesus with strength. We don't offer to God our wisdom and self-sufficiency. We come to God helpless, don't we? If you didn't come to Jesus helpless, you've never been saved. To be saved, you must go to Jesus Christ and, and confess there is nothing you can do to remedy your condition. You are fully, completely dependent on Him. His power is perfected in our weakness. That's when we understand the saving power of Jesus Christ is when we understand our utter helplessness to save our souls. Yet we continue to experience more of Christ's grace and sanctification. It's not only in those initial moments when we become Christians, but it's also in the life that we live thereafter. Again, Paul's view, starting in the middle of verse 9, he says he will gladly, happily, joyfully boast about his weaknesses so that the power of Christ would dwell in him. 
Paul decided to continue to find his enjoyment not in comfort. We find a lot of enjoyment in comfort, don't we? He decided not to find his enjoyment in comfort, but to continue finding his enjoyment, his gladness, his happiness in boasting in weaknesses. And don't we know that being weak is hard? Being weak is very difficult. Now, we, again, we lie to ourselves because so often we live very comfortable lives, and we don't realize just how weak we are. And then we hit a wall. There are thorns, circumstances outside of our control. We are victims of other people's actions. We are victims of Satan and his demons, perhaps even touching our bodies, giving us physical issues to deal with. And we're reminded just how weak we are. And this apostle tells us, gladly boast in that weakness. Find your enjoyment in being weak. Because, look at what it says, that the power of Christ would dwell in us. That the power of Jesus Christ would be like at home in us that our bodies would be tense for the power of God to dwell. The result of embracing hardships is Christ's power using your body as a tent, that you would be strengthened from the inside, that you would be strengthened in spirit, that you would be edified in your soul. So Paul learned contentment in these trials for the sake of, of more and more dependency on Jesus. In verse 10, he lists these off. He says there are insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties. Insults meaning threats of aggression, general mistreatment everywhere he went. He had Jews and Gentiles both insulting him, threatening to do him harm. Distresses refer to those pressures of life that make it necessary for us to adapt. If you've ever had to move when you weren't ready to move, a forced adjustment in your life, that's a distress, isn't it? That's very distressing. Paul had many of those. Persecutions. Paul was being hunted down at every turn. He was being threatened with jail, threatened with death for serving the Lord Jesus. And a great many difficulties these circumstances that are so challenging and so difficult in life, all of them are opportunities for us to grow closer to the Lord. That's how Paul saw them. All these things are just opportunities to grow closer to the Lord, to be strong in Him. So consider what we're missing when we prioritize comfort and ease over our weaknesses very difficult to, to grasp this. It's very difficult to embrace this. What are we missing when we prioritize our own comfort over these weaknesses that God wants us to have? When we're constantly looking to get out from underneath hardship instead of sitting there and letting it wash over us and say, God, I need you. I'm totally dependent on you. Teach me in this moment. Test me. What if our prayers, instead of asking for escape, what if our prayers were asking for God's testing? 
that we would be refined, that we would be strengthened in our difficulties? What if our prayers embraced this helplessness that we all have? And we said, Lord, I am utterly helpless. Teach me in this season. Teach me what it is I need to know. Guide my steps. Help me walk through this. We, we immediately want to jump to prayers of escape. Maybe put that off until like day five or six. Let those first few days just sit there. And even when we pray for one another, so often when someone is hurt or, or sick, we just immediately jump to, let's pray for healing. What if, what if we took a day and just prayed that God would test and teach His people, each one of us? What if, what if we embrace the moment instead of trying to run out from underneath it? This is what I mean by hugging thorns. We so often try to avoid the hard things of life. But Paul is teaching us here under the inspiration of God's Spirit to lean into the hardship, to boast about your weakness, that the power of Christ would dwell in you. This is a difficult truth, but I think this is, I think it's true. It's absolutely true. That when you are trying to avoid thorns as your priority, you're missing out on sanctification. You will not grow closer to Christ. You will not be more like Christ if you try to avoid the very things that Christ suffered. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And He is our sanctification. He has become to us sanctification from God. Walk in His footsteps and embrace the blood. Embrace the nails. Embrace the cross. Embrace the struggle of this life because on the other side of that is a more intimate relationship with your Creator and Sustainer. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 together. Second Thessalonians 1, turn forward in your New Testament, just a few pages. And let's consider some other places where Paul has talked about hardship. Second Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 3, Paul says of this church, "...we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren." as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in a flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He's teaching the believers in Thessalonica that their persecution is not without purpose. 
They were enduring persecution and affliction because of their testimony in Jesus. But what was God doing through this? He was testing them. Verse 4, he brings up their perseverance. He brings up their faith. Verse 5, he says that this is to make them worthy of the kingdom of God. Paul, when he was on his missionary journeys and in Galatia, he was telling the leaders of the churches that it was through many hardships that they must enter the kingdom of God. Varied hardships, sickness, persecution, no matter what it is, God was going to use it to bring them into the kingdom. Their spiritual journey was going to be through hardship, not with ease and comfort. He's testing and teaching His people. I also want to show you Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, starting at verse 18, speaks to some of, this, some of these very same topics. Speaking of the difficulties of this life and why they happen and how we are to consider them. Romans chapter 8, starting in 18, I'll read down through 25. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Our hope is more tangible in difficult circumstances, in hardship, whenever we have thorns. We understand more of what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8 when life is hard than we do when life is good. This is a challenging word for some of you today. I know it is. It's a challenging word for me. But I think we, we need to be reminded of this in a really somber way today. I think this needs to, to affect our hearts. This needs to touch our hearts. It, it gets to that question of why bad things happen in the world. Or some people will ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, we know there is none good but God. And God works in the lives of His children, those who have been adopted because of their faith in Jesus Christ. He works in our lives in such a way to test us, to teach us, to bring about more faith, to bring about more dependence on Jesus Christ, to cause us to grow in our humility, to keep us from exalting ourselves. This life that you're living is not about comfort. This life is for suffering for Jesus. This life is about enduring to the end for Jesus. This life is about having faith in Jesus moment by moment, day by day, no matter what happens. Because it's all about the glory of God, the power of God, and the grace of Jesus Christ. 
that has saved us. And day by day, His grace is causing us to be more and more like Him when we lean in to what He is doing and not try to avoid it. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You are faithful and kind and patient. You're gracious and merciful, abounding in love. You will never leave us nor forsake us, and You have promised to be near to the brokenhearted. God, we are totally dependent on You. We are dependent on the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for salvation. Nothing that we've done, but all that Jesus has done. And Lord, we ask together that You would give us a grander vision of what it means that this life is for Him. Help us to understand more and more that this life is for Christ. Help us from the core of our being outward to live this life for you, to give it all to you because you're worth it. Eternity is such a long time. Help us to understand more about the decisions that we make now that will affect eternity. Help us to understand more about how we are to help one another on this road and to sacrifice for one another in humility, to wash one another's feet and to honor you in all that we say and do and think. God, you are so good. And we lean on you today in Jesus' name. Amen.